This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. I don't know what your dinner plans are for this evening, but for today's episode of Tasting Together, I'm Roki Tong and my co-host Andre Pru are going to start the night off with mac and cheese. We are going to talk about mac and cheese. We had a very interesting conversation about this. I know. I I think it's just one of those moments where you probably we had once again the clashing of cultural differences <laughs> yeah. in our upbringing. I mean, it's something that I just take for granted. Like I know I've got a turkey in my freezer. If we if we go all the way back to like our whole lead up to Christmas, or as I affectionately refer to it, turkey season. You know, you confessed to the. Uh, actually, no, I shouldn't call it a confession. It doesn't have quite that gravitas. But you let the audience know that turkey and the spread is like an exotic meal out for you because it's not something that you grew up with and I, I think mac and cheese is just a continued extension of that and by the way I do have a turkey in the freezer we are, I'm going to cook like the full spread for you I'm just waiting for it to get a little warmer because I I'm very excited I just I love cooking turkey when it's not Christmas it's true I think in some ways it's also nicer when it's not I feel like, at least for me, I never get experimental with turkey because every year I'm like, it's always going to be turkey. It's going to be brined the same way. It's going to be stuffed the same way. It's going to be served with the same accompaniments. And, you know, every year people say, you know, other folks always say to me, oh, look at this really cool, like, curried recipe or we're going to try this new wild rice stuff. And I'm like, I don't want that, though. I don't want that. I See, only eat the turkey once a year. It needs to be done the exact same way that's every actually, single time. That, that's actually one of the reasons why I started doing just because turkey and, and like this is what I love about us talking about turkey at the end of February is it's I wanted to experiment to bring that like extra wow uh, to the family because my family w- were never people who brined turkey. And then I got a hold mm. of a brining recipe and you know, I was able to perfect it in the off season. I guess it's a little bit like a pro athlete. You gotta, you know, you gotta go through spring training before you play the big game. And you know, cooking turkeys in the off season gives you a chance to try out some new stuff. All right. Well, um, let's not betray our listeners anymore, since we did promise them mac and cheese, and maybe. <laughs> but when it comes to mac and cheese, I think the thing where I learn a lot is like for me, mac and cheese is synonymous with craft dinner. Yes. You know, sort of the way we we see, you know, all tissue, like most of us see all tissues as Kleenex, but that's not true. There's many other types of tissues out there. But for me, very personally, when it when we talked about mac and cheese, it was essentially craft dinner for me as a kid. And it was a special occasion food. Oh, I think it's it's just one of those things, too, where um, being a little bit smarmy as Canadians about the difference between us and the Americans is like craft dinner. The branding is something that only exists in Canada. In the United States, it's uh, just macaroni and cheese. It's not craft dinner, and like, or as it's oh. affectionately known, KD. Yeah, craft dinner is Canadian branding and marketing. You can you can confirm that with Eric, your American uh, fiance. <laughs> I actually did not know that, and I and then and then you went ahead and sent me this article about how Canadians buy over 1.7 million boxes of craft dinner a week. I believe um, it. I mean, it's a thing too where um, when I was in high school and university, I was fortunate enough to have uh, the odd exchange student pass through the threshold of my home. And it was always something, especially at that age, like the high school and early university years, you, you tend to live off the stuff when you don't have much money because it's all going to tuition and books and, you know, drinking beer at the campus pub once you're legal age. Uh, but, you know, it's the thing, too, where, like I said, the smarmy Canadian pride just be like, it's craft dinner here. It's not mac and cheese. Well, I know for me, I remember when I became old enough to have a little more autonomy over what I could snack on or at least, 
you know, understood how to sneak into the cupboards without my parents <laughs> noticing. I loved discovering, you know, the single pack mac and cheese where mm. all you had to do was crack open your little single pack of macaroni and then you cracked open your little single bag of powdered cheese, poured it in, put it in the microwave, ding, ding, ding instant magical little mac and cheese meal with a little with a you know side of tryptophobia since all the noodles always turned upwards and you got all the little holes staring up at you but um i definitely it was like my little sneaky deaky you know happy snack food that i had for a long time now but the conversation is what we dove into for mac and cheese is you know these days you get a lot of gourmet mac and cheese usually available in you know um cafe settings, restaurant settings, you have truffle mac and cheese now, you have mac and cheese with four cheeses in it, you have mac and cheese that's baked mac and cheese or brulee mac and cheese or what have you mac and cheese. And I'll be super honest with you, and I think the gourmet foodies likely may um, skewer me for this, but I honestly, after a certain price point, I don't actually see that much of a difference. Like I am not going to be the first person to order mac and cheese in a restaurant and think I'm just going to be blown away and i've done it i've done it a few times i've had those cheat days where i've caved in bought the more expensive mac and cheese and went was like okay that was okay but it was sort of like i don't know i could also spend like 50 cents and and eat this kd instead and probably have a similar experience you know don't hurt me no i I actually that's a very fair conversation because it's actually the reason why i brought this up because like uh, you and I will often just come up with ideas for the show and, and like we both work uh, we don't often work in the same room together so we have a spreadsheet that we share and, and often there are ideas on our shared spreadsheet that just go on the floor to die but I got my hands on like a kilogram of Conte at half price Conte is this like delicious French cheese it's savory it's earthy it's nutty you know, it's kind of like your favorite Swiss cheese that you would imagine on like a hamburger or something, but like the next level. And it was like the real stuff. And I never cook with it because I like to eat it because I love the cheese so much. You know, for a fact, Maroki, that the, the past couple times I've gone to France, I've bought like an insane amount of this cheese to bring it back because it's so cheap there, but so expensive here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as you describe the flavors of the cheese to me, I can say to myself, okay, I can be convinced as to why this would be a better mac and cheese and an upgrade from KD. And maybe maybe the question to ask is, you know, what makes mac and cheese great for you or, yes. what, or what makes mac and cheese great for me? Right. Like if I think about it, it's like, hey, you go okay. first. You go first. Let's let's yeah. make like a let's make a, a little checklist here. What makes mac and cheese great for Maroki? So. If I am going to be spending more than my 50 cents on my little powdered mac and cheese, I like sharpness and flavor. So I think I like sharp cheddars. I like aged cheeses. Um, I want something with a little bit, bit of bite to it. So I think if some, if, you know, if something's being marketed to me as a four cheese mac and cheese, but it all tastes very one note to me, I'm thinking, well, why, why bother with four cheeses at all? And then I also like texture. So, you know, textures. I'm not a fan of just super, super creamy mac and cheese. I like when things are broken up with a little bit of crumble, a little bit of crust, a little bit of something, a little bit of je ne sais quoi. So that's not, (laughs) I'm not just eating like a big slurry of just cheese. You know, I think you've actually knocked it out of the park. I was a little bit concerned when you said you're not a fan of like creamy mac and cheese. I love it when it's like super creamy and decadent, but it needs the texture. You talked about texture. I think a mac and cheese with a perfect crust on the top. So my Conte mac and cheese that I made, I actually swapped out 
uh, the elbow macaroni, which is the traditional one for, I'm going to say this wrong. I'm sorry, our Italian listeners, but the orecchietta, the, the ear shaped pasta. And mm. it was like next level. Like it was like each little noodle was a little spoon for that delicious melted conte. And then on top, I took some breadcrumbs and crisped them up. And it was it was pretty close to perfect. I'm not going to lie. And I just had to share this story with you to see how, how we felt about mac and cheese. Also, my final asterisk on Kraft Dinner, while it's still a Canadian classic, I feel like its crown is up for contention. If you've never had it, the President's Choice White Cheddar, I think, might be superior to the original KD. Ooh, those are some fighting words right there. So I guess uh, everyone's going to have to go and grab that white cheddar mac and cheese and give it a shot. Now, maybe the contentious question I should ask as we wrap up the segment is, do you pair it with ketchup? Oh, I do not. But it is one of the things that it is completely <laughs> acceptable to pair with ketchup or hot dogs. I mean, you, you can get as gourmet as you want. I'd be curious what you would do with, I don't know, maybe some char siu with, uh, with some KD. That'd probably be a decent pairing. That sounds pretty good. And I really want to try your version too, Andre. And okay, can, considering that you make it sound so good, have you ever considered selling it? Oh, how would I do that? Is it possible that home cooks might be able to start running their kitchens like restaurants? Is there an app for that? Yes, there is, Andre. It's been in the market for some time and it just got a round of funding. So stick around, folks. After the break, we're going to be chatting a little bit about the app Cooking On 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. One of the things you don't know much about me on Tasting Together is that I do not cook in the house. I am not the chef in my household. My partner takes care of all that for me. But Andre, you clearly are one of the chefs in your house, even though you are married to a pastry chef. That's right. My pastry chef does not cook the moment she leaves the kitchen. Uh, but delivery is definitely something that is a part of our day-to-day life when I don't feel like cooking. If you were to order delivery, Maroki, would you order it if you knew it was made by maybe your next door neighbor instead of a professional kitchen? That's an interesting question because, you know, I definitely had some very, very talented friends in my life who either made cookies or dishes and they've brought them over or, you know, they've kind of just sold them privately towards like to each of us. And I've (laughs) bought them before, but now, you know, in the circumstance where I'm just looking on let's say an app and trying to decide whether i want to buy something that's that's an interesting question and i you know given if they're anything like my friends i probably would buy from them and we're very fortunate to be joined by two co-founders of the app cooking michael baruch and morley ivers to chat a little bit more about their brand new app so thanks for joining us guys thank you for having us it's a pleasure to be here nice to meet you maroki and andre so i guess the first question is what is your app and how does it work Sure. Um, it's Morley here. And Cookin is uh, the world's homemade food delivery marketplace. And we're today uh, live up and running on uh, the App Store and Google Play uh, in Toronto, our first city. It's a place where there are you know, literally thousands of talented food creators who are turning their home kitchens essentially into restaurants. It's a place where you can go to find the most exquisite food made by individual food creators who are all talented uh, certified food handlers in uh, operating out of inspected home kitchens. And uh, you can order a food. We send a driver to pick it up from uh, their their home or a commercial kitchen, wherever they're working, and taking it directly to you. I actually really like the bit where you talked about how you said they're like certified food handlers and that their kitchens are looked at. So 
I know that was one of the biggest things that my friends talked about whenever I used to ask them, you know, like, why don't you guys sell your food on a more regular basis? And they would always say to me, well, you know, food and safety is a really big thing in the restaurant world. And when it comes to selling food, there's a difference between making some baked goods for your friends and actually trying to make money off of it. So can you talk a little bit more how, about how food health and safety is addressed in this model? Yeah, with, without question, something we spent a lot of time on. I, I think most things uh, about COVID really sucked, obviously. Uh, one of the uh, only few positives that came out of it was this notion that many of us took it as an opportunity to reinvent our lives. And in doing so, uh, particularly in the restaurant and, um, and the food space, uh, a lot of people you know, who were accustomed to incredibly talented food creators who were accustomed to working on the line in the back of a restaurant for minimum wage at ungodly hours had to decide how they wanted to live their lives moving forward. And progressive uh, states, uh, particularly in the US, started to pass microenterprise home kitchen laws. California was the first state in America to do so. And since then, uh, over 30 states have passed microenterprise home kitchen laws that enable individuals who are certified and, and who are operating in a clean and safe way inside of their home to do exactly what I just described, you know, make an incredible meal out of their home and deliver it and, and to somebody that ordered it uh, locally in their neighborhood. I guess that's sort of the big elephant in the room. I think a lot of people would think of ordering from someone else who's a, who's a home cook here. The question I have is, why did you start this app? Where did the idea come from to be like, oh, you know, there's some good home cooks out there. Let's let them get their food delivered. Yeah, you know, Morley and I go way back, um, dating ourselves a little bit, but back in high school at an entrepreneurial class, we first met, met sitting next to each other, uh, became fast friends, and uh, then joined a company called Points.com in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, worked together for four to five years, we took that company public, and then uh, Morley moved to New York, I stayed here in Toronto, we raised our respective families and always looked for uh, an excuse to get back together and kind of bring the band back together and, and start our own business. And, uh, you know, we were always talking about how we felt as, as dads specifically of, of kids, how divided society had become. Um, you know, more than living in the United States, you're a Democrat or you're Republican, or you're gay or you're straight, or you're rich or you're poor. And we found that, you know, the one thing that really unifies folks um, and that is blind to all these sort of external factors is food. Everyone loves eating food from other people's ethnicities. And we thought that if we can create a platform that brings people together, that creates a personal experience um, outside of what people are normally used to now with the food delivery apps, where it's very transactional, you almost have this feeling of guilt um, when you place an order. Um, and to be able to transpose that with an opportunity to create a personal experience by uniting people and their food and their recipes that have been passed down from generation, knowing you're supporting local, we just thought it was a really powerful idea supported by a really cool business model. Based on that, once a person's a certified food handler, is there any sort of curation process for who you decide um, goes on the app? Or is it just anyone who wants to sign up can become a chef on cooking? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. We, we've, we've had such tremendous response from the food community. We have well over 2,500 
food creators in Toronto alone over the last several months that have applied to be on the platform. Um, but it's not just a matter of wanting to be on the platform. We're actually trying as quickly as we can to onboard as many cooks as possible. But we are going through a curation process to make sure that we have the right cooks with the right certifications to make sure they pass, obviously, all the kitchen inspections. Um, and they make awesome food. So we're actually, Morley and I spend a lot of time along with our team tasting a lot of uh, different cuisines, listening to amazing, inspiring stories, um, and trying to onboard as many of them as we can. Now, these people that you're, and you're talking about sharing really great stories as well, what type of people is it that are, are gravitating to what it is that you guys are doing? Is it a lot of like, uh, you know, professional cooks that are out of work, maybe sick of the grind, or is it like just people looking to open their own restaurants? Uh, like who, who we got uh, cooking for you? Well, you know, some of the commonalities that we see, first off, um, two thirds of the cooks on our platform happen to be female or individuals that identify as female. Uh, and we also tend to see a lot of newcomers to the country, people who are bringing, you know, their, 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 their culture, their ethnicity, and some of the most incredible recipes that you may not have ever had the opportunity to try. And, you know, they're putting them live on our platform. And what they're, the reason that uh, we're starting to see uh, people that, that, you know, that share these uh, commonalities is because they, they have a paradigm shift in their, uh, income earning capabilities and, and and the word is really spread across the community which is why you know thousands of people have applied to cook on the platform thus far um i think people don't want to necessarily work in the back of the line in a restaurant for minimum wage uh, at 1 30 in the morning they want to be able to work where they want how they want and these you know passionate food creators want to cook exactly what they want to cook that's super cool. Is there anyone who's like a superstar cook and it's really, really hard to get food from right now because they, you know, they're so popular that you can and, you know, their their home kitchen is only a certain size? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, drive too much uh, attention to already uh, the scarcity that, that they're experiencing. But uh, certainly uh, I tend to think of Hooray for Pizza. Food creator's name is Adam Ward. All around a great guy. But I can tell you, um, he has been uh, ranked by others as uh, amongst the top uh, pizza makers in in Toronto right now. Um, certainly by third party reviews, he makes a Detroit style pizza. His crust is it, to say it is mouth watering would be an understatement. Uh, he sells out in minutes. You can pre order on the Cooking app a week in advance, and there's not a day that goes by where people are not you know taking down uh, his pizzas. Uh, fortunately, I have a uh, backdoor key, and uh, my my children get to enjoy his uh, <laughs> his delicacies whenever 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 they want. So, how can people download your app as we wrap up here? Yeah, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, you go onto the App Store, you type in Cookin C O O K I N, or go on uh, to Google Play, do the same thing. Um, the other cool thing is uh, for your listeners, uh, if they would like, uh, until the end of the month, there's forty dollars off your first order, no strings attached. Uh, you can also go to cooking.com. There's links to the app stores uh, and Google Play on there. And um, you can try a meal and, and that we'd love to hear your feedback. Well, right. I feel like I'm going to have to give that a try for the days that uh, Eric doesn't feel like cooking. Thank <laughs> you so much, Michael and Morley for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a great evening. Speaking of things that are hard to get your hands on, we are going to be talking about uh, whether or not truffles are worth the hype. So stick around. We are tasting together on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together, Toronto's news, today's talk, 640 Toronto. Maroki, would you spend a lot of money on a fancy mushroom? 
I, I have done this, Andre. I am guilty of spending <laughs> a lot of money on the fancy mushroom. We've actually cooked for each other with the fancy mushroom we're about to talk about. It's true. It's true. And maybe we should just um, quit, I don't know, um, spinning around the block about what the fancy <laughs> mushroom is and just outright say it. We're talking about truffles, folks. Yeah, I saw a headline that made me go, hmm, where it's, why are chefs so obsessed with truffles? And then it made me think about the fact that you and I both like we keep an eye on when they go on sale or when they come into the market that we've um, you know we spend the money like it, it i think the price of admission is like usually 50 60 dollars for what amounts to a, a little truffle the size of like maybe a nickel maybe a quarter if you're lucky uh you've got white ones you've got black ones but when i was uh reading through this article i noticed um the name richard singh who is uh, a chef that i've had a chance to know for quite a few years he is now the head chef at Graydon Hall Manor. How are you doing, Richard? I'm very good. How are you? Good. And we thought that you might be a good person to tell us, why are chefs so obsessed with truffles? I think the answer is twofold. Um, for one, it's a luxury ingredient. Um, it's in the same category as caviar, uh, lobsters, foie gras, sea urchin. Um, so it's something that you're not exposed to on a daily basis. So when you do get to use it in the kitchen, it is a treat. Um, it's also, truffles are very seasonal. Um, so the black ones, you start to get them mainly late September, early October, and their season goes until about March. Um, whereas the white ones, uh, they're even more specific, and you're looking at about probably mid-November till mid-January. Um, so the fact that they're a luxury item and that the season's short makes them um, something fun to work with. Well, I will say from a consumer standpoint, before I ever bought a truffle for myself to play with, it was something of a, like a bit of a luxury experience, right? Like almost like living vicariously through my food. So when I went to a restaurant, if something said it had truffle on it, I was like, ooh, I think I'm going to order it just because it has truffle on it. I really want to get a chance to experience this. And I can trust that someone, someone who is an expert is not going to do a disservice to the truffle, which sort of leads to my next question with regards to how do you cook with them? Because again, I, well, I know when I got my very first one, I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, I have this thing. It costs so much money. What am I going to do with it? I even bought the fancy slicer. <laughs> like I was like, I'm not even going to do use a knife. I'm going to pay the extra dollars and get the official slicer to slice the truffle. And I don't think I've ever done anything that wasn't just putting it right on top of the food because I'm like, I don't want to mess with this ingredient. And honestly, that, that is the best way to use a truffle. Um, truffles are about the aroma. If you actually take a slice of truffle and, and, and eat it, it doesn't actually taste like much. Um, and that's that, that goes for, for most of the food that we eat is that I think about 90% of the flavor that we taste is going through our nose. Um, so truffles are best used at the last minute, just thinly shaved on top of warm food so that the uh, the aroma gets into your face. Um, it's also really well, uh, it goes really well like baked into stuffings. Now, apart from being a luxury ingredient, I, I know like all of those ingredients that you listed, like foie gras, like there is just a huge like delicious factor to it. Also, like it's a really hard thing to cultivate, um, you know, and some people might argue cruel but that's another topic for another time or like caviar and, and uni like the, the sea urchin what is it about truffles that make them so special like i guess as a chef and as a consumer that that make them so sought after beyond just the fact that they're a luxury ingredient there, there there's really nothing that has a similar aroma to a white or a black truffle um with foie gras you can use monkfish liver as a substitute for the texture for the mouthfeel um caviar you know, you can have either the black caviar, which is the most expensive, or you can do trout roe or other kinds of fish roe. So there's alternatives. With a truffle, 
Um, there's nothing really similar to it. I am obsessed with that extreme, like earthy, mushroomy, musky aroma that you know is more present in white truffle. I did discover that when I did buy black and white truffle. I will fully admit to my, um, I guess my plebeian senses when I got black truffle. I was like, you're pretty good, but you're much more delicate than I thought. And I've learned that I really like that oh. intense truffle flavor, which which might, you know, <laughs> and I prefer <laughs> I prefer the black product. ones. I prefer the black oh, the black ones. Yeah, I mean, we had like I, I don't know. There's just something about the the white truffle where it's just got this like kind of acidic twinge to it where like richard you said that the black truffles are a little bit more floral and i don't know i think it's yep. just just the florality of it that i really dig and I, so, I i agree because the white truffles they can be a bit overwhelming um to the point where i've worked in restaurants where once you open the the, the jar of or the container of truffles in the kitchen the whole restaurant smells like truffles for half an hour where the, the black ones are a bit more nuanced and a bit more subtle Maybe I just like to be punched in the face by the flavor, which is, you know, it's it's funny because I know some of my earliest experiences with truffle is that my mother procured this bottle of truffle oil that I obsessively like drenched my, you know, pizza crusts in all the time. And then I remember watching an episode of Chopped Ones and someone used truffle oil and the judges are like, it's not real. Oh my god! I, I mean, that's something very new that day. I mean, that's something to do with like truffle oil. Is I feel like it's an ingredient that's been pretty easily overdone. And like Richard, you you know my wife as well. She has actually forbidden me from <laughs> using truffle oil in the kitchen because I was so guilty of overdoing it. Do you have any feelings on truffle oil as an ingredient for people who maybe can't afford? Yeah, I mean, like I I I love truffle oil. I always have bottles of truffle oil um, kicking around. Um, people who know me but not close. Um, they'll always buy me truffle oil for Christmas. They think it's an easy gift for a chef. Um, truffle oil is like everything else. There's good varieties. There's bad varieties, right? Um, the cheaper ones tend to have aroma added to it, um, which is developed in a perfume lab. And that can be that really um, acetone, gasoline kind of smell in the cheaper truffle oils. Then as you buy a better truffle oil, generally they do contain actual pieces of truffle. And... In kitchens, when we have these truffles for a short amount of time, we flavor that we use we use the truffle aroma to flavor as many things as we can. Um, so white and black truffles will generally store with eggs, uh, with butter, with rice, because these these items absorb the flavor of the truffle. Um, it's been pretty popular in the last couple of years to um, to infuse uh, chartreuse with white truffles. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but I, I, maybe this is the year. Um, so if you get a good quality truffle oil that actually contains actual truffle by a percentage of, uh, of weight, as opposed to aroma, it will be a better product. Um, and you know, the restaurant I worked at in New York city, there's a three mission star restaurant where during the season, we'd probably go through 10 pounds of black truffles a week, Holy four crap. pounds of white truffles <laughs> a week. Um, I, all the dishes that I cooked with truffles, I did finish with truffle oil, um, for that same aroma factor. It just, it just hits you a bit faster than the fresh can. Do you want to shout out the restaurant that goes through 10 pounds of truffles a week? Uh, it's per se at Columbus Circle in New York City. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I, I think it's good to know that there's different grades of truffle oil out there and that if people are getting truffle oil, they're not necessarily just like cheaping out, so to say. And it's it's a good way to kind of extend the longevity of your truffle as well. If it's you know something you're not used to spending a lot of money on. I know the last sliver of truffle that I last juice currently sits in a tiny jar of oil and I feel like it's just like stretching the life of the truffle a little bit further. Um, one kind of final question I had is I think, you know, chefs may be going crazy over truffles, but I think it's also because, you know, consumers are beginning to learn a little bit more about truffles as well. I mean, we, we've even seen 
movies talking about truffles and or you know fiction movies the one pig with Nicolas Cage in it and do you think like the rise of the of truffle popularity that it's good or bad for the truffle industry yeah I mean the popularity is I think it's a good thing I think when people are informed and they're knowledgeable and they learn about something um that's always a positive as far as um farming practices and you know shy or sly salesmen that's been going on for decades um, it's a really common thing to, you know, have an inferior batch of truffles, meaning less aroma. And you might stick one or two good truffles in there. So when you go to the kitchen and you show the chef, they open the box and they're like, wow, these smell great. And then you buy the truffles and you, you pay, you know, hundreds of dollars for them. The salesperson leaves and you realize you've got some duds. Um, mm. that's, that's common. Um, and then, uh, with, with, with harvesting techniques, you know, truffle farmers are pretty, uh, um, secretive about their locations um when i was in croatia i did visit a farm um where they do inoculate the roots of the oak trees with truffle spores at a young age and about 10 years later they can actually harvest truffles every year um so that is a sustainable way of producing truffles i think they're trying that in canada and australia as well um so that's a good thing for everybody um and with all things that are either farmed or or natural there is a price discrepancy um, so the farm truffles would make it more approachable for, you know, everybody to to have their fair share. Whereas, you know, the, the wild ones, which are going to be a bit more rare, um, would be reserved for, you know, the restaurants or the, 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 the discerning buyers. All right. As we're wrapping up the end of the segment here, just knowing that you are definitely a, one of the one of the fancier chefs in Toronto. What is your favorite way to uh, serve truffles to your guests? It's, it's it's simple, um, like handmade egg, heavy egg yolk pasta, um, a really good butter. Um, right now, like St. Bridget's Creamery has some of the best butter in Ontario or in, in Canada, in my opinion. Um, butter glazed pasta, shaved fresh white truffles, maybe hit it with a, a drizzle of brown butter at the end. Like that is, that's the best way to go. Oh man, I'm hungry now. <laughs> I am super hungry. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we are heading down the highway to Niagara to find out what's going on there. An interesting news article caught my curiosity this week. Well, we always love chatting about wine, so stick around after the break. We're going to go right to that on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. After the past few days, it's a sober reminder, pun intended, that winter is still among us. I'm Andre Prude, joined by my co-host Maroki Tong, and this is the time of the show where we are joined by Danny Longo. And speaking of the cold weather, I saw a really interesting article in Wines in Niagara, which is a really great blog, focuses on Ontario, and it was demonstrating the ice wine production in Ontario from 2018 to 2022, we're making about 10% the ice wine that we were making five years ago. What do you guys make of that? Okay, so I saw the same article and I'm over the ice wine. Like, what? No more ice wine. We talked about ice wine all throughout January. We had the ice wine festival. And don't get me wrong, I like my ice wine. I think we've all established that we like ice wine. I was more interested by something else in the article. Danny? You uh, yeah, I'm with Maroki. I do like my ice wines, and that is a concern, but I don't think we have anything to worry about as far as like, getting access to ice wine, that's for sure. <sighs> All right. Maroki, what caught your eye? Well, what caught my eye was just the conversation about what is trending upwards in Ontario and specifically sort of like what is really showing incredibly well as a red grape and 
you know, Rick Van Sickle, who's the you know author of Wines in Niagara, was talking about how Cab Franc is a rising star. And this is something I've been like yelling about for years. And I was like, yes, vindication, Cabernet <laughs> Franc as the signature Ontario red grape. You know, I think it's fascinating because I've seen the ebb and flow of Cabernet Franc. And it's one of the challenges about the climate in Ontario is... Cabernet Franc does ripen and do very well in the climate. I'm always very happy to fly that flag. You know, I get fixated more on Pinot Noir, but I think it's just the way this market drinks is when we get a, a gangbuster summer. So like I know off the top of my head, the hot summers, 2010, 2012, 2016, 2020. Those are years I know that Cab Franc is always going to, and I'm putting this in air quotes, taste good. See the air quotes there. Um, <laughs> But it's just because it's a hot summer and Cab Franc is a grape that you can plant in a place like California, in Napa Valley or Sonoma. And, you know, it'll taste a little bit more like a warmer climate red in those years in Ontario. But in those cool climates, it still tastes pretty damn good. Cab Franc for me has always been my favorite Ontario grape. And, you know, I, I prefer it to Cab Sauve. I prefer it to Merlot. And I'm not a huge fan of Pinot's. Yet. Pinot Noirs in general, they're just a little bit more dry than I would like. So yeah, Cab Franc is always, if there's a blend of Cab Franc and a Merlot or something like that, I'm always, I'm always going to try that. I think the way I always saw it was that the vegetal notes that show up in red grapes in, you know, that growing cooler climate um, showcase well in Cabernet Franc. 100%. It integrates the rest of the flavors in a way that doesn't that word sticks out like a sore thumb for me in Merlot and Cab Sauve. When I get that vaginal note, it like bops me in the face. It doesn't taste balanced. It's kind of, it's very, very in my face. Whereas Cab Franc, I'm like, ooh, I'm kind of digging this like herbaceous, you know, bit of like pyrazine greenness um, mixed among these other kind of earthy notes in, in the wine. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head, which might be an answer to the bigger question about the perception of red wines in Ontario. Rick actually talks about Cabernet Sauvignon in his article, and it's something that I really agree with. Cabernet Sauvignon is a late ripening grape. And in a tough year, we've just had 2019 and 2021, which were both cool and rainy summers and long, cool falls. Uh, Cabernet Franc will ripen, and, and you you were completely correct. Cabernet Franc often has a little bit of a greenness to it, but it's just, it's a part of it it is meant to be part of it if you ever taste Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley in France for example we don't see a lot of that on the market you definitely need to go to the vintages section if you're looking to taste Cabernet Franc on its own from France and occasionally see Cabernet Franc from like the southern hemisphere Chile or Argentina on its own but it is completely normal to get a little bit of like bell pepper or you know something that smells like herb garden in them where Cabernet Sauvignon, if it doesn't ripen, you don't get a lot of that signature fruit that you get from it. I think for a lot of people who are just like, ooh, once again, in a hot summer, Cabernet Sauvignon from Ontario can be good, but you go to a cooler year. If you're a red wine drinker and you gravitate to that Cab Sauv from Ontario, you might be disappointed. Do you think that, you know, historically, Ontario, we might have based a lot of our plantings to around what we thought uh, a market would like, given that we're a pretty young industry, right? So we might have been mimicking the likes of California or, you know, even even the likes of France to say, okay, we're going to print, you know, we're going to plant these Bordeaux varieties and then kind of realize in hindsight that we might have overplanted things that don't perform as well while some of our other grapes are beginning to really showcase. And it, it all comes down to just educating the market of what is available out there. 
I think that is definitely part of it. Uh, you know, like we like we've said before, the problem, and I put that also in air quotes with the Ontario climate, is the versatility of it. That you can grow a lot of things. The fact that things like Cabernet Franc and Merlot can typically do pretty well here is I don't know if the market knows what what Ontario is really hanging their hat on. And I think the other problem is because of that versatility in climate, you get a lot of winery owners who are planting grapes because they love them and they want to share their passion for them and, you know, damn the climate and let's let's find a way to fight Mother Nature to make wines that I want in my vision. And that can be tricky given how varied the climate is. And I mean, this is me speaking anecdotally. If we if we need to do some do some research, I just you know, I'd feel bad as a journalist throwing any one winery under the bus because there's certain places like Syrah is an outlier. There's like a half dozen wineries in Ontario that do Syrah really, really well. And I would never want to see that go away, you know? Oh, absolutely. I I love me a great Syrah. But you go to most wineries and you ask them, what do you have planted here? And it'll be like, oh, we got about, you know, 40% Cab Frog. We got about 30% Cab Sauve and, you know, 30% Merlot and then 10%, you know, pick your strange grape uh i don't know a syrah or a shiraz or whatever and I, I think there's a reason for that for sure i mean i would you know i personally love malbec but you know they can't grow here really I, I know there are some wineries that try yeah and i don't know what the success rate is like as far as you know losing fruit um but it's, it's just not feasible and i guess it doesn't make sense economically for them right and economics is actually another good conversation point about what was, you know, what, why do we name certain grapes the signature grape of Ontario? I know Gamay was sort of in contention, um, just amongst like writers and bloggers when people were just sort of saying like, what is the signature grape? And I think for Gamay, a lot of it was price accessibility. You can mm-hmm. get a pretty good Gamay for, you know, reasonable price point. Whereas everyone was saying things like Pinot and Cab Franc usually have to start forking, you know, dollars over in the 40 dollarish range to get one that's decent but i think that's even you know that's a myth that's being blown out of the water too um you know if i want to give a shout out to any winery like vineland vineland is mm-hmm. putting out entry-level cab franc and when i say entry-level let me put on air quotes entry-level <laughs> cab franc for you know i think 15 bucks i think yep. it's usually available at the lcbo yep and it's, it's awesome like for 15 bucks my brain is absolutely blown by how good it is and that's because they have the benefit of technology they use an optical sorter and they can actually pick out the best grape in a very fast manner to maximize production and put out a product that is not too expensive and just smashes above the price point all right all right just as a point of like because you went very nerdy for a quick second but i need to take a moment to to also put the nerd hat on as well an optical sorter is a machine where it's got a little computer that takes a picture of every single grape that goes in it. Like think of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, with uh, the egg detector, good egg, bad egg. That's Veruca Salt that ended up uh, going down the chute in that, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but like all the grapes go in, and in a tough year like 2019 or 2021, it pulls out all the bad fruit, and only the good fruit ends up in the wine. And as a result, uh, Vineland is able to consistently make amazing Cab Franc every year peely island is another place as well that makes really good um entry-level cab franc at 15 bucks a bottle yeah no peely island is on my list it's one uh, winery that i have not uh been lucky enough to visit in ontario i haven't made my way out there yet but uh, for me um as far as cab franc goes yeah i like that i like that bench area so i like vineland i love toss uh cassava as well 
Um, and there's a few other ones in there that are also really good. I like Sue Ann, uh, Sue Ann Staff, oh, and, yeah. and uh, Henry of Pelham as well. That $10, I think, does a cap franc in the $30-ish mm-hmm. range. That is quite good as well. I mean, honestly, if you... You know, as we're prattling off the list, what it's really just all three of us saying is, guys, go to Niagara or go to Prince Edward County or go to, you know, all the other regions like Lake Erie, North Shore, which is where Pelee Island's located. Just go. Go to wineries. They're all next to each other. It's a quick drive. Go visit Niagara. Niagara does not pay us to talk to promote Niagara, but... We are all wine lovers here, and we're all telling you to go to Niagara or go to other spots in Ontario and drink their Cab Franc. Cab Franc for everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We're at the end of Tasting Together for this week. Make sure you lock your radio in at 5 o'clock next Saturday for next week's show. Or online, because you can always listen online, because this is the future. This has been Tasting Together on 640 Toronto.